All right. Well, good morning, everyone. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor for Riverwood. And um, you would think I would know what announcements we're making today since I'm the one who put together the slides, but I found out about five minutes before we were starting. Jake's like, my voice is hurting. Would you help me so I can sing the entire time I do the announcements so you get stuck with me? Yeah, it's, it's uh, rough. Our, our drummer had to call in sick this morning. Uh, her husband was going to be running sound, so Randy jumped in last moment. Uh, like, Michelle's coughing, Jake's voice is cracking, so uh, we're, we're limping along here. Thankfully, uh, we can worship God even if we have no voices. So, uh, If you are a first-time guest, when you walked in, you were hopefully given one of our handouts. Our church family picks those up. We uh, have our announcements in there. Uh, we're not going to take time to go through all of those because we trust that you know how to read. But you'll notice inside of there is a connection card. Um, Our church family fills out that connection card every single week. We just simply fill out the top line on the front, and then on the back, we're putting prayer requests. We sign up for things like the food pantry or or other such things or saying, you know, we're interested in a growth group. But we invite any of our first-time guests to fill out the front of that card. For every first-time guest willing to fill that out, we donate $5 to Compassion International. Compassion is an organization that has a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They work through local churches all around the world. They help kids get an education, get some food, there's some clothing. They connect them with sponsors who, who take an interest in their life and are praying with, for them. But their hope and dream is that these kids would also hear about Jesus. Because as they hear about Jesus, they not only are released from spiritual poverty, but oftentimes they are helping give them the tools to move out of physical poverty. And if you can change the life of a child, you sometimes end up changing an entire family. And if you change enough families, you change an entire community. And if you change enough communities, you change the world. So we would be honored to get to send $5 on your behalf. So if you're willing to fill that card out, we're not going to arm twist you into it. But uh, if you fill that out, all you have to do is drop it in our giving box on the back wall. Uh, there's one in here and there's one right by the front door. And then we will be honored to send that off on your behalf. Uh, also, uh, let's see, f- an- announcements. Uh, what, what do we have? Is that it? Just giving? Okay. So if you're giving today as part of your worship, you can uh, also drop that uh, in person here or do that online uh, or follow the text instructions. And uh, if you are giving, thank you so much for helping fuel the fuel the mission that God has given us. Uh, today, as we jump into Acts and we talk about what is the mission that God has given the church, uh, your, your donations and funds are helping us to, to do that, to try and change our Waverly, our, our surrounding area, and change the world. So thank you so much for, for participating uh, with that. Well, have you ever had a sense that you just had to do something? Like you, you couldn't explain it, but you just knew, you, you felt compelled. I, I'm supposed to do that. Maybe it was to, you know, attend a certain college or, you know, apply for a certain job. Maybe it was to ask a certain person out. Maybe it was to go out for a specific sport or, or to, to read a certain book. I, I mean, it could be just about anything. You just knew, I'm supposed to do this. Anyone have a moment like that? Okay, for a second there, you guys scared me. I thought I was going to be the only one. I've had a, a small handful of such moments. I used to talk about them somewhat freely, but o- over time, I found myself being very hesitant to talk about them. Because for me, it turns out they're very personal. And and for me, they've been what I would call God moments. A a moment where I just strongly sensed God saying, here's what I want you to do. And and as I would share those stories, sometimes I would find out it made other people feel like, well, 
God must not love me as much because I haven't had a moment like that. And I realized, well, that's not true. The cross is evidence that God loves everyone. But then also, I know of situations where someone claims to have such a God moment, but really that's just an excuse for selfishness. Well, God told me, and they use it to manipulate or try to get whatever they can. And so over time, I've just found myself really hesitant to say, yeah, God said. And yet I would be lying if I said, oh, no, I've never had anything like that. Because I have. I've had some very key significant moments in my life where I've sensed God saying, here's what I want you to do. Some people would call that a divine mandate. Yeah, some people call it a God moment or, or an epiphany, but... Uh, it's a moment where I just know I'm supposed to do this. One such moment was the call to plant a church. I wrestled with it. I prayed about it. I cried about it. I tried to get out of it. I did not want to do this. But there finally came a day, probably about two years later, where I just finally gave in. It was just like, okay, I realized I'm supposed to do this, and I would rather attempt it and fail than to continue to fight against this. It was like a divine mandate. Today, we're going to see a mandate that God gave the church. It's a mandate that they had to do. The definition of a mandate, oh, sorry, I flipped on you. The definition of a mandate is an official order or commission to do something. If if any of you have ever served in the military, you know exactly what that means. Your commanding officer says, here's what we're doing. You can't go, you know what? I just don't really feel like it. I, I had different plans. No, you have to do it. God has given a mandate to the church. It's not something the church can just go, you know, that sounds good. Others can do that, though. I, I think I'm fine. No, it's something that we need to do. However, Because God created us and knows us and loves us, he has not given us a mandate that is to arm twist us and make us miserable. It's a mandate that when we do it, we will actually find great freedom and great joy. So that's why we need to learn this mandate. Plus, I believe it is a mandate that God did not just give to the early church But it's a a mandate he's given to his global church. And because Riverwood is just a small sliver of God's global church, it means this mandate exists for us too. And so if we're going to be the church God calls us to be, we've got to learn the mandate and learn how to live it out. And that is why we are studying the book of Acts. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up for the first time to the book of Acts. Acts, Acts chapter 1. If you did not bring a Bible, we will be putting the scripture on the screen so that you can read along. But we would encourage you, download a Bible to your phone and feel free to use that on Sundays or stop by our resource table and pick up one of the paper copies we have back there. We'd love to give it to you. We really want you to have a Bible, not just so you have it here on Sundays and can use it, but that way you have a Bible that you can use any day or even every day of the week. Uh, We're going to be doing Acts 1, 1 through 11 today. Uh, We're going to start with verses 1 through 5. So before I read that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we now come to your holy scriptures, and we ask that you would be our teacher. Lord, we come to these scriptures with all sorts of ideas and thoughts and biases, 
And I pray, Father, that today would not be us trying to have those biases confirmed. Instead, it would be us coming to your scriptures to hear what you have been saying to countless numbers of Christians throughout the generations and what you have for us. And so for us who have been struggling in our faith, would you speak to us today? For those of us who have been heading a certain direction, would you just help us to see, are we headed the right way? Are we following you? And for those who may not even know you, that even through this, as we begin looking at the mandate that you gave the church, that they would hear your heart for them, your love for them, and even in this uh, message, they would realize that they need to give their life to you to become part of the church and to follow this mandate as well because you desire this for us. This is the place you want us to be. So Father, help us to find joy in fulfilling the mandate you have given us as your followers and believers. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's start with verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Anytime you begin a study of a book of the Bible, it's good to kind of take a journalist's approach to kind of stop and ask the who, what, where, when, why type of questions. So as we begin the book of Acts today, let's take some time to do that. First, who? Who wrote the book of Acts? Well, a guy by the name of Luke. His given name was probably Lucian or Lucius, but he was, it was just shortened to Luke. We met Luke last week as we finished up the book of Colossians, and we saw Luke described as a physician. So he's Luke the physician. So a very well-educated man. We know that Luke, well, don't know. We think Luke was a Gentile Christian. He was not one of the original 12 disciples, and he was not Jewish. This sometime later in his life, he came to understand the gospel, and it began to change things. Um, what's interesting about the book of Acts is that Luke... As a historian, this is our only historical book in the New Testament. I mean, I guess you could count the four Gospels as, as history. Uh, but as far as what is considered a book of history, Acts is it. Many historians of Luke's day would identify themselves. They, they were actually quite proud that they were so well-educated, so well-researched, that they were able to collect all this information, put it down in, onto parchment or paper, and publish it for people to read. Luke does not identify himself. It's, it's almost as if Luke's like, you know what? I'm not the star of the story. Jesus is. And so he puts all of it, his attention on Jesus, or here in the book of Acts, on the things that happened after, as he said there in verse 1 and 2, after Jesus ascended to heaven. So this is all about what happens around them. And yet, even though Luke does not identify himself, there's almost no question that he is the author. There, there are a number of factors that, that give us confirmation that Luke authored this. First of all, in the second century, a lot of the church fathers, well, not a lot, almost all of the church fathers identify and recognize Luke as the author of the book of Acts. But also what we know about Luke makes sense. Luke, as a physician, would have been very, very well educated. 
Well, the language used within the book of Acts, it's written by someone who's very, very well educated. Uh, Second, uh, he uses medical terminology. Well, it kind of makes sense if he's a physician. He uses some terminology that someone else who wasn't from the medical field might have chosen some different words. And yet, we believe he's a Gentile Christian. And while there's clearly an awareness of Judaism within the book of Acts, he doesn't write from an overly Semitic type of, of way. He writes more like a Gentile, a Greek. But also, as a physician, he would have needed to be very detail-oriented, and the book of Acts is incredibly detailed. Over the next weeks, months, we're going to see a lot of different places, a lot of different people, and a lot of those people have a lot of different titles. What's interesting is that those details almost caused a lot of people to doubt that Luke wrote the book of Acts, and in fact that the book of, of, of Acts was a farce. It was fiction. I mean, th- think about it, right? Fifth, fifth and sixth graders and m- m- you know, middle school, high school students don't listen to this next part for just a little bit. No, seriously, don't, don't listen to this next part, okay? You can tell when someone is lying when they start throwing in all these extemporaneous details because they're trying to make their fiction sound true. And that's what a lot of people thought Luke was doing, trying to make this sound really, really good and make people believe it. So he throws in all these titles and stuff. But the problem was, people looked at it and said, well, there was no one under the Roman Empire with a title like that. This can't be right. There was no one living there at that time with that name. That person actually lived over here. So this can't be right. No, this whole thing's a work of fiction. In fact, there was a guy by the name of Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. He uh, was a 19th, English, uh, 19th century English historian, and he had an admitted anti-Bible bias. And he read the book of Acts and thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. And so he set out to prove the book of Acts wrong. Luke couldn't have been the author. This thing is not true, so that he could show these Christians just the poppycock that this whole book is. And yet, the more he read the more he studied, the more he learned about what archaeology was revealing. Eventually, William uh, Ramsey said this, there are reasons for placing the author of Acts among the historians of the first rank. In other words, he went from thinking this whole entire thing is false to believing Luke's probably one of the greatest historians of his day. Archaeology has proven the historical aspects of the book of Acts 100% accurate. There were times where they're like, ah, no one ever used that title. Well, later archaeology revealed, oh, they did use that title in that place. Oh, well, that person, he actually worked over here. Oh, but archaeology revealed there was another person by that name in this location. Now, you may not agree with Luke on a theological level about Jesus and the the importance of, of, of the cross, But when it comes to his historical accuracy, he's on. He's got it. And for me as a Christian, that gives me a lot of comfort. Because if he was so precise and clear and accurate on the small stuff, it gives me a lot more confidence in the big stuff and makes me want to listen and learn from him. Now, one thing you notice there in verse 1 is Luke says, in the first book or in my first account, that is referring to, referring to the gospel of Luke, all right? So it's almost like the gospel of Luke is part one, and now he's writing part two. And what you see is he says in the first book, O Theophilus, all right? So he's writing to someone. 
this Theophilus is unknown. The word Theophilus just simply means lover of God. So it is possible that there was someone named Theophilus because maybe his family was, were Jewish and they were God-fearers and so they named their son lover of God. Maybe it was like a nickname. In the book of Acts, we're going to get to meet a guy by the name of Joseph, but we don't know him as Joseph. We know him as Barnabas. The name Barnabas simply means son of encouragement. So maybe this guy was such a lover of God, he took on a nickname. Maybe this guy was wealthy and rich, and he's the one who like, commissioned Luke to write this. He wanted to know more about Jesus, so he commissions the gospel of Luke, and therefore it keeps going, and, and he writes now the second account, the, God, the, the, the book of Acts. But also, Luke might just be writing to anyone who's a lover of God. If you are a lover of God, you are Theophilus. And so this book is for you even if it was written to a gentleman named Theophilus. This book is still for here, for here for you to learn and listen to. So that's a little bit of our who. All right, what? When you realize that the book of Acts is part two, it helps you to understand the what behind the book of Acts. All right, if, if part one was all about Jesus, part two is, is kind of all about the church. Now, in English, we have known the book of Acts as, its, its official title is The Acts of the Apostles. Well, because that's a mouthful, we usually just drop off of the apostles and it's just known as Acts. However, what's interesting is we get going, you're going to notice there's really only two apostles that get highlighted. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Now, other apostles get named, but we don't really see many Acts by them. So it's kind of interesting to call this The Acts of the Apostles, when really it's only about two. I, I think a better name might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit a, a little bit today because he's mentioned in here twice. And we're going to, have to, we're going to bump up against the, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit throughout this entire book. But we, uh, uh, I think that would be a better title. Also, we, we see the, the church expanding. So this could be the Acts of the Church. In fact, one Greek manuscript apparently called this the Acts of the Apostolic People. That might be a great title as well. But what you need to realize is part one is about the start of the gospel. Part two is about the movement of the gospel. It's all about Jesus and now how the word about Jesus spreads. So that is the what of our book. All right, next question we need to ask is where? All of the historical events within the book of Acts happen within the Mediterranean region. Right? We're, we're going to start in Jerusalem, and we're going to see things slowly expand out. Eventually, we end up with Paul in Rome. There's some mention of, of places in Africa, but it's all in the Mediterranean region. But a lot of people, when they ask where, they want to know, but where was it written? Honestly, it doesn't matter. Now, some books of the Bible, it helps to know where the author might have been. Like, what, what were the conditions going on? For instance, when the Apostle Paul wrote some of his letters, he was in prison. Well, as you read some of what he writes, it helps you to understand his point and where he's coming from when you realize he's under house arrest. But for this, it, it, it doesn't matter. It does not matter if Luke was in Rome with Paul and he wrote this down. To me, that makes sense. I mean, we, we saw in, at the end of Colossians, Luke was with Paul. And so maybe he's there interviewing Paul, learning more of this, because we hear a lot of Paul's story in the book of Acts. But maybe he'd also traveled. Maybe he was somewhere else. Maybe he's back with Theophilus, handing off the book of Luke. 
And suddenly it's like, oh man, this is great. Could you now tell me all about the church? And so he goes back to write it. What matters more than where he wrote it was what he included. It's far more important for us to realize just how accurate it is historically as well as theologically so that we can learn from it. All right? So that's the where. When. Most books of the Bible, there's always debate on when it was actually written. Uh, as I consulted a number of sources, it seems the best is that it was sometime in the early to mid-60s. Now, some people tried to argue for an earlier date. Some tried to argue for a later date. But those who said, well, if it was later, there were certain events in history that happened that, that Luke would have included, primarily the fall of, of, uh, you know, Jerusalem, or, or the fall of Rome in 70 AD, but it's not in there. And some people say, well, he didn't include it because this was for literary purposes where he ended it where he did. Big, huge debate. But I think the best answer is somewhere around the early to mid-60s. What's more important to realize is that the span of time within the book of Acts, across the 28 chapters, we're going to cover 30 years. It starts roughly around 30, 33 AD with the, the resurrection of Christ, and we're going to end somewhere around 60, 62 AD. All right, Paul, I think it was like in 64 or 67 AD when he was uh, martyred, uh, killed for his faith. Um, and so we, we end with him still in house prison. So somewhere around 60, 62, he was let out for a time, ended back in, and then killed. So about 30 years is our time frame. So as, as we work through over the next several months, realize we're, we're going to be making huge jumps in time. But the most important question, Why? Why did Luke write this book? Is it just because Theophilus commissioned him to do it? Or is there something else? I personally believe he wrote this to not only let us see the expansion of the gospel, to see what God was continuing to do after the ascension of Jesus, but also to put it out there, to show the church, here's your mandate. So here's how the early church did it. And so now here's how you can be a part of it as well. And so that's what we're going to do today and is what we're going to get to do through this entire series. So join me there in verse 5. So um, as I said, Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. So that means he, he probably did not meet Jesus in person. Yet somehow this gospel message came to Luke. He believed it about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so he thought, hey, if, if this dude, Jesus, could prophesy his death and resurrection and pull it off, if he has that kind of power and authority, maybe this is a guy we need to listen to. And that is why he starts right off at the very beginning with words from Jesus. In verse 5, we hear Jesus say that John, meaning John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he baptized with water, but you, speaking to his 12 disciples, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is not the first time that Jesus mentioned the Holy Spirit to his disciples. In the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, we hear Jesus tell them, I'm going to send a helper. The, the Greek word there is paraclete. And so some, some translations put helper, some put advocate, some put counselor. But he's going to send the Holy Spirit. In fact, he told them, it is better for you that I go away because I, as a man, can only be in one place at a time. But I will send my spirit to you, and therefore, now you see how he fulfills it in the Great Commission. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us through his spirit. So he's told them several times, I'm going to send my spirit to you. 
But right here now, right before he ascends to heaven, he reminds them one more time, I'm going to give you my spirit. And yet, these guys still don't get it. God's been saying, I mean, Jesus has been saying to them, I'm leaving, I'm sending my spirit to you, and yet the guys still say this, verse 6. So when they, the, the 12, had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I want you to realize just how audacious that question was. This is a bunch of fishermen, a former tax collector, a bunch of average Joes. And yet they now think they're going to get a front row seat to the overthrow of Rome, the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel. And who knows, maybe because they're such good friends with Jesus, they get a cabinet seat as well. Just imagine that you have a best friend who in conversation is just so thoughtful. He or she just speaks so clearly on a number of subjects, so much so that a bunch of other friends start taking interest. So he or she starts a podcast. Pretty soon there's thousands, then hundreds of thousands. Soon there's a couple million people listening to them. And then suddenly Canada invades. Look out, Minnesota. Your friend starts talking about it on his or her podcast. Politicians start listening in, realizing they say an incredible stuff. Pretty soon, your friend becomes one of the leaders, even though he or she's not in the military. They're like the thought leader, and it helps America stop the Mounties from taking over. I can use Canada because we're safe from them. But your friend suddenly is now one of the most popular people in the world, and so when it comes election time, it's a landslide. Your friend has just voted president of the United States. And little old you from little old Iowa are being invited into a cabinet seat. You got to be on the front row of this world-changing event. You suddenly feel like a big deal. Here are these average Joes from little old Galilee and little old Israel thinking they're going to get a front row seat to watch Jesus overthrow the Romans. Because they had been told since they were little kids that the Messiah would come, overthrow their oppressors, and reestablish Israel. Now, they believe Jesus is the Messiah. And the dude just raised himself from the dead. There's no way the Romans are stopping this guy. And so they're asking, is this now the time? Are we going to get to witness the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus just has to shake his head and say, guys, you're thinking too small. Notice what he says in reply to them in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These disciples are thinking about the 8,000 square miles that Israel occupies. Jesus is thinking about the 57 million miles that earth occupies. These guys are thinking about the 2 million Jews that were living in Israel underneath Roman oppression at that time. Jesus is thinking about the 8 billion plus souls that are going to be living across this globe. It's like these guys are thinking big, we're going to build a 12-bedroom mansion. And Jesus is saying, uh, no, guys, we're building a football stadium. 
They're thinking big. But really, they were thinking small. Jesus needs to shift their perspective. And to do so, he gives them a mandate. The first shift comes there in verse 7. He basically is saying, guys, don't get distracted. I've got something bigger for you. The establishment of Israel, that will happen in God's time, in God's way. He has the authority on that. It's, it's not your right to know. Besides, if you get all caught up in that, you're going to miss what I have for you. He had something else, and that's in verse 8. He's saying, instead of worrying about Israel, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we just talked about this like I don't know what, four or five weeks ago at the end of our 21 days of prayer. And uh, uh, so I don't want to take a ton of time on it, but it, it is worth us just taking a moment to remind ourselves of, of how we're interpreting this at Riverwood. We don't live in the Middle East. We're not in Jerusalem. And yet we still believe this is the mandate. So for us, our Jerusalem is Waverly, Shell Rock, Janesville, Denver, It's your community. It's right where you're living. That's your Jerusalem. Our Judea is the area around us. It's the Cedar Valley. It's northeast Iowa. It's all of Iowa. Uh, For the the Gentile, I'm sorry, for the uh, disciples from Galilee, their Judea was a bunch of Jews who thought like them, looked like them, dressed like them, talked like them, worshiped like them, and and they're supposed to bring this gospel into that culture. Well, that was going to be kind of easy because they had already think those ways and they understood the gospel. So they're probably going to be able to communicate the gospel to those in their surrounding context. But Samaria was a little different. Samaria was this region just north of Jerusalem, kind of split the the, the nation. And the people there were half Jewish, half Gentile. So it caused a lot of Jews to look down upon them. They they were just really, I'll just say it, they were racist. So much so, a lot of people, when they would travel from the northern part of Israel to the southern part, they would go around. They did not even want to bother with the Samaritans. And yet Jesus is saying, those are people. They matter to me. Yeah, their culture's different. They dress a little differently. They think a little differently. And yet, you need to go be my witnesses to them. You need to let them know what you've seen and heard. How you saw me die. How I rose again from the dead. How God's love is even for them. So go to to Samaria. But even that's not enough. Go to the end of the earth. Now for them, they only knew really about the, the Middle East area. Pretty soon, over the course of this, we're going to see them in Rome. We're going to see them, the gospel get into Africa. It was to continue to spread all around the globe. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I was standing there in that moment, I'd be a little flabbergasted. Whoa, I, I was just kind of wanting to see Israel be kind of cool again. You're saying, like, we have to reach the whole world? And I would feel overwhelmed by that. And when God called me to plant a church, that was overwhelming. I can't imagine what it would be like if he's like, Aaron, you're going to start an entire denomination. First of all, it's probably the last thing our world needs. But second, man, church, that, that was enough. That, that was already too big for me. I can't imagine what these guys are feeling. Like, this is going to be too much. But notice, Jesus did not say, and you got to do this in your own energy and strength. He said at the start of verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
This was not them having to use all just their own resources, their own energy, their own wisdom. He'd already been telling them this Holy Spirit was going to come and he will provide you with the words. And we later see them end up in trials and arrested and standing before courts. And suddenly the words come. They're, they're suddenly able to preach. To, you know, I have to spend, you know, all week trying to get this thing ready. These guys stand up and immediately start preaching. The Holy Spirit was going to provide everything that they needed. While we're talking about the Holy Spirit, I just, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to bump up against the doctrine of the Holy Spirit throughout this entire series. We're going to really dive in here in three weeks. But I, I, as we start the book of Acts, I feel like we need to just acknowledge something. The American church is not good when it comes to the topic of the Holy Spirit. We either go to one extreme or the other. We've got churches that just completely ignore it, almost like he doesn't exist. That's why Francis Chan wrote a book, Forgotten God, and it was all about the Holy Spirit, because we just don't think about it. Or we're on the other side of the spectrum, where the Holy Spirit is so awesome and cool, it's like Jesus is his little brother, and he's the star of the show. So, I mean, yeah, Jesus put on a great performance. He deserves supporting actor, but the Holy Spirit, it's all about him. We go to one extreme or the other. As we interact here in the book of Acts with this concept of the Holy Spirit, we cannot go to either extreme. We can't go to the one extreme and ignore him. If we do, we're going to miss out on so much of the book of Acts. Yet we also can't go to the other end and pretend that it's just all about the Holy Spirit because he's not more important than Jesus. He's a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he is just as essential as Jesus, but he's not more important. He's not more powerful just as the Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit. And so we need to enjoy the Spirit. We need to understand Him. But we don't elevate Him and pretend like the cross was, oh, that was a good thing that Jesus did on the cross. But now we're moving on to better things. Now, I realize that if you come from a church like me with a charismatic background, maybe you're comfortable talking about the Holy Spirit. Maybe if you come from a church with a charismatic background, you're uncomfortable talking about the Holy Spirit because of some of the things you saw done in the name of the Holy Spirit. Some of you, you come from church traditions where the Holy Spirit was not talked about. And so it's, it's a little awkward. It's a little weird. Some of you, you come from no church background and you're trying to figure out who in the world, what is this Holy Spirit? Because I will be honest, the Holy Spirit is mysterious. Jesus, we get Jesus had a body. He, he uh, you know, he was visible. He could be seen. I mean, he, he got tired. He got hungry. He even gets killed. The, the Holy Spirit, though, does not have a body. He speaks, but not with lips. He, he can't be stopped. He can't be killed. You can't block him off at the front door. The Holy Spirit is a spirit and can move wherever he wants. And yet, we so often think of the Holy Spirit as like this unseen impersonal force that only Jedi can manipulate. The Holy Spirit is a person. When Leanne and I lived in Venezuela and we taught at a, a missionary kid's school, um, uh, I, I got assigned to teach Bible 9. Uh, and so we spent one quarter on God the Father, one quarter on Jesus, one quarter on the Holy Spirit, and one quarter on the church. I was teaching the first semester, so God and uh, the, the Jesus— and then I, we had some class switching, and so a different teacher took over, and they began to do the Holy Spirit. And uh, I found out that the kids were arguing and fighting with him. He's not a, a, a person. 
No, he's, he's a force. And I mean, it, they, like, it got really, really contentious. Sadly, all I had to do was walk in and go, guys, he's a person. And they believed me, but they wouldn't believe him. The reason he's a person is because he has personality. We think too often of person as body. The spirit does not have a body. And yet, we see in the scriptures, he can be grieved, saddened. He has emotions. He moves. He, he, he's not just like stuck in, in one place. You know, he, he can move around. We, we also see that he knows things and he can be known. He is a person, the third member of the Trinity. I want you to become like Jesus, to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. But the way that happens is through the Holy Spirit because the Father, the Spirit, and the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all one. So it's the Spirit who's going to help you become more like Jesus. And so we need to understand the role of the Spirit. And so throughout this series, we're going to be seeing the role he played in helping people understand who Jesus is, the role he played in, in spreading the gospel and in the expansion of the church. And that's going to help us see what's the role he wants to play in our lives individually and corporately as a church. All right, now let's finish this thing out. Uh, verses 9 through 11, we get to see Jesus levitate. Verse 9. And when he, Jesus, had said these things about the Holy Spirit and their, the mandate, as they, the disciples, were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The global church refers to this as the ascension. The ascension of Jesus. When Jesus finally leaves this earth, and then in a couple chapters, we're going to see him send his Holy Spirit to them. We're going to see it in, uh, ourselves in three weeks. My church, we didn't talk so much about the ascension. The church I grew up in, and, and keep in mind, this is a kid's mind of understanding, all right? So I'm, I may have been off on, on some of it, but what I walked away in my childhood with this passage was we need to be looking for the return of Christ. We were all about the return of Jesus. That's what we got so excited about. I mean, we had books uh, all about it. We talked about it. Have you ever heard that phrase, you're, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good? I don't think we were quite that extreme, but we, we were kind of close because it was all about wait till Jesus comes back and then we are out of here. Couldn't wait for that rapture. But now as an adult, as I, as I read this, I, I've come to a different conclusion. It isn't that we need to ignore the return of Jesus. I, I believe he is going to return in his way, in his time. But I think the angels are trying to do something else because what was it that had just happened right before Jesus ascends. He gave his mandate. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Suddenly he lifts up in front of them, disappears into the cloud. The guys are standing there looking, and suddenly two guys in white robes show up. And they walk over and like, what you guys looking at? You didn't see? Jesus just like levitated. He just disappeared. They're like, yeah, he, he'll come back. In fact, he's going to come back the exact same way that he just left. He'll, he'll come back on the clouds. So why are you guys standing around looking? 
Jesus just gave you a mandate, something you have to do. So let's get to it. Let's go. Let's head into Jerusalem. Let's go be witnesses. I don't think they're trying to get them so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. I think they're trying to say, hey guys, he's coming back. Don't worry about it. In the meantime, he's given you a command. Go into all the nations, preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's go fulfill the mandate. I believe that mandate is for us. Yeah, it's worth us trying to figure out maybe when Jesus comes back. It'll be a great moment. But let's not get so caught up in that that we miss the call right here. Let's not get so caught up in, in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that we miss how the Spirit wants to work through us to help this dying world understand this gospel message. Oh, but Aaron, I'm not an evangelist. That's okay. There are some people who have a spiritual gift of evangelism. But even if you don't, Jesus did not say, and you will be my evangelists. He said, you will be my witnesses. Now, I realize that you did not live in the first century, so you were not there when Jesus hung on a cross and came out of the tomb alive. But neither was Luke. Yet Luke was so convinced of the truth of that, he took the time to write it down because he was a witness to what it meant to him and how he saw it change others. If you are a follower of Christ, you have witnessed what God has done in you. That's all you need to talk about. It's not your role to convince anyone. You don't have to worry about trying to come up with the absolute best argument. All you do is share. Here's what God means to me. Here's what I believe. And you can just extend that invitation to them. And if they believe, praise God. That's his work in their life. But if they don't, it's not your fault. The power comes to the Holy Spirit, not with how cool you are. So just go. Be a witness. A witness through your words. A witness through your ways. A witness through just your very being. And when God brings those moments, just share. Just talk about it. All you're doing is witnessing to what he means to me, what he did on a cross, and the difference that I think that makes in the world. That's the mandate. And yet, don't walk out of here thinking, great. Now I have to be guilted into sharing my faith with others. No. If you understand who God is and what he's done, you understand his love. How dare you and I take that love that God has given us and just keep it to ourselves? There are people out there who are hurting. They're crying. They're, they're fighting all sorts of things. And maybe exactly what they need is to know how much God loves them, how much he's for them. Yeah, but Aaron, I'm struggling with those things too. Well, just as they need Jesus, you need Jesus. And so come to Christ. Come to him. I am not going to promise that he's going to do the miracle immediately. Maybe he will. In these next holy moments, maybe during communion, God is going to do something in your heart and your mind. And if so, we are going to give all the praise to him and you're going to be walking out of here on cloud nine and you're going to be singing the praises of God and it's going to be easy for you to go and be a witness to what God has now done. Some of you, it's going to take a while. You continue to seek after God. You continue to seek him because he is for you. He is with you and he is working. Sometimes it takes going through the hardest winter 
to truly appreciate the greatest of springs. So even if you find yourself in a winter right now, hang on, go to him, run to him, so that when he does bring spring, you can be a witness to the goodness of God. But even if, even if you never get out of this winter in this life, if your faith is in Christ, you get eternity with the Father. And it's going to make you appreciate that all the more. If I were God, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'd fix it for you. I'm, I'm just, I'd, I'd just make it all better. And yet I'd probably ruin something. I would probably rob you of something better. So go to God. Trust him. Because if Luke, who wrote such intimate details with such accuracy, is pointing us to the power of the Holy Spirit and God's heart for us, then may you and I keep going to him, running to him, and trusting him. And as we see him work in our lives, may we then go and be witnesses to that. Because that is the mandate. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would take the things that I have said and use them as you need to. Lord, that there would be nothing that I have said that, that has been manipulation, uh, that has been inaccurate. Father, I pray you would wash all that away. And any compulsion that anyone feels is because of you and your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I thank you that there is not an a, uh, organization, there is not a, a country, there is not a building that could be shut to keep you out. And so we know, therefore, that you are here, you are with us. And so I invite you to work and do what you need to do. Because I firmly believe that you, our triune God, have a heart for us. You have created us in your image. That image was destroyed because of our sin, and yet you have come, Jesus, to repair that. And you use your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to convict us of our sin, and to draw us into this life that you have for us. So God, I pray that we would bring our questions to you, that we would bring our doubts, that we would bring everything and lay it before you, allowing you to minister to us. So Holy Spirit, do what you need to do in these next holy moments as we partake of the communion elements, as we sing, as we pray, would you be in our midst? Would you minister to our hearts? Would you touch us mentally and emotionally? Because you are for us and you are with us. Father, for those that are longing for healing, I pray that out of your mercy you would grant that to them. But for those that you are choosing not to yet, May they still turn to you and trust you that even in their weakness, you are strong. That even when you will not remove this thorn in the flesh, your grace is sufficient. That each of us would completely and wholeheartedly trust you. And then out of that trust, out of our knowledge of your love, we would be the type of people who would be able to share it. Because there are others who are hurting, who are lost, who feel broken. And what they need isn't just another chemical fix. It isn't just to binge another uh, episode. It, it, it isn't to, to run into dangerous things. It is to find themselves wholly surrounded by you to understand your love and your heart for them. God, I believe you can use anything to communicate that. You can use a song. 
You can use a book. But so often what you choose to use are people. Father God, I pray that you'd help the people of Riverwood to be those people. That we would follow your mandate. That we would feel compelled to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus lived out among a people that you love deeply and desperately. So Father, would you work now? Show us what we need. Continue to teach us. Continue to humble us. Continue to fill us with awe in who you are and what you've done through a cross and an empty grave. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. With that, we will open up our communion tables. Uh, If you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come to uh, take that cup and uh, to open it up. As As you open up that top flap and you take that bread, that you'd remember that represents the body of Christ, which was broken for you. And then when you break the tab and pull it back and you take that cup, you remember that juice represents the blood of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I just want you to know I'm glad you're here. If you have questions about the Christian faith, about what it means to follow Christ, by all means, put that on that connection card. Email me or or set an appointment to talk to me or maybe you know someone who's part of the Riverwood family. We would love to witness to you about who Jesus is and what he's done. But even if you're a first-time guest and and you know the story, you put your faith in Christ, then I invite you to come. May during this song, at any point, may you take those elements and may you worship and thank God for what he's done. But as you take it, realizing Jesus was sent for you, by taking those, you're now saying, okay, God, now send me. Send me to work. Send me to my friends at school. Send me to my neighborhood. Send me to my sports team, to my service club. Send me to be your witness. And may you impact some people because of what you've done in me. So may we do this now in remembrance of him.